Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein. Happy Friday, everyone. We have another great episode of Tech Talk. This is a theme episode. We don't have a ton of theme episodes. Typically, it's let's just have the best people on who are available that day, but this is a special one focused on Tech Alpharetta. Um, And for those of you who know of Tech Alpharetta, I think you'll get a lot of insight into the companies and the organizations that uh, maybe you haven't learned of before. For those of you who don't, I think this will be a good education um, of one of the really premier incubators and um, startup support organizations in the Atlanta area. So we are going to have three great guests on. First, we're going to talk to a graduate of Tech Alpharetta, Adway Joshi, who's the CEO of Data Sears. And after that, we're going to talk to the CEO of Tech Alpharetta, who runs the show, Karen Cashin. And finally, we're going to have a current member of Tech Alpharetta, Jason Perez with Yards. And as always, we're going to start alphabetically with Data Sears. Adway, how are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Um, so we let's start with the headline. When I go onto your website, I see Taming the Data Demon, which I have to say, um, in a world of websites with corporate speak, that has to be one of the more fun ones that I've read. That's true. I should have worn my shirt today. Uh, we actually trademarked it because people started using that and we are like, you yeah. can't anymore. <laughs> Good for you. Okay, so uh, the the headline draws me in. What exactly does it mean? So take financial industry, uh, the amount of data generated is so large, volumes, velocity, payments are getting faster. It's just a big mess and that gives rise to a, to a data demon, right? Um, when you know that banks have started installing or putting chief data officers in play, you know, you know how important that data is, but mm-hmm. the question is, can they really manage it or it turns into a big demon? So that was the whole uh, concept that we help you tame the data demon. Okay. And when we say financial industry, that's a, you know, financial industry with a capital F is a very large one, right? Are we talking about banks? Are we talking about payment processors? Are we talking about mortgage uh, lending companies, everything in between? Uh, Great question. We kind of sit in between banking and payments, uh, which is almost a new industry. It's a a new sector of its own. Uh, Many people call it as prepaid. Uh, and, and some of the examples would be Venmo and Cash App and uh, Chime and Vero Money and all these new neobanks, uh, Monzo, Revolut, et cetera, et cetera. So they sit in a, in a world called prepaid, which is kind of embedded between a bank because you need a bank in the back, mm-hmm. but then it's all about payments. Uh, and that's where we kind of sit because that, that rift is growing uh, further and further. It's creating a lot more opportunity for companies like ours. Okay, when you say rift, what are you referring to? So banking is going in one direction and then payments is going in another direction. And that's why these people uh, sit in between to uh, become the enablers, right? So the reason why um, most of these neobanks came into play because they thought that, okay, banks are not providing the user experience that the user wants, mm-hmm. right? You know, people don't want People don't go into the banks anymore these days. They do everything digitally, and yet these banks are so way behind. So that created that separation between the consumer and the bank. Uh, take an example of Robinhood, right? They completely changed the investment industry, and they're now offering a card where you can park your money. And that's kind of a threat to the bank. So what the banks are starting to do now is they're saying that, okay, we will partner with you. Instead of you being a opposition, we'll actually work with you. We, we'll mm-hmm. be frenemies, right? And the way they do that is they lend their banking license to these um, uh, uh, fintechs, right? So because it's hard to get a banking license. It is. It's it's getting uh, very interesting because uh, news just came out that uh, a couple of folks just got it. I believe uh, Varo uh, got their charter, right? And then uh, there was news I read somewhere that Square may be going out for one and other people are going to eventually go out for one, right? So I think you will see it changing. But what does that do to the industry is to be seen because... I still trust my bank way more than anybody uh, out there because I know that they have been around for a long time. Sure. And, and they give me that, uh, you know, uh, mental, you know, kind of uh, uh, guarantee that, okay, my money is not going to go anywhere. Look, as much as we all now use Venmo and the Cash App and there's an extreme convenience to it and when I have to write a check, it just seems antiquated um, at this point, uh, do I have more faith in the brand of Bank of America? where I deposited a check earlier this morning by not going into the bank branch. Absolutely. 
Um, and, and part of that is infrastructure. Part of that is history and part of it is branding. But yes, there does seem so it's probably good for the banks that they're being, that they're being disrupted a little bit. Okay. But I'd imagine it's very good for these upstart organizations to be able to partner with work with, um, organizations that have that cachet. Yeah. And, you know, traditional, you know, when you go to a bank, right, typically you go there for, um, really a couple of different reasons. One is you go there to park your money, right. And, and you expect some kind of return on it. You want it to be safe, right. So the FDIC insurance is why you go there really speaking, right. Um, then second is you want to be able to pay people out. So you have your ACH, you have your checks, you have your wires, et cetera, et cetera. And then the biggest thing is the lending piece. You go to a bank usually to take a loan, right? And, and your loan, uh, which is a liability to you, is an asset to the bank, mm-hmm. right? And your deposits that you put in the bank, which is an asset to you, is a liability to the bank, right? So those traditional aspects are still uh, being continued through the bank because you know most people are now trying to figure out, hey, if I really truly want to replace a bank, I really need those three vehicles. I need the ability to wire money in and out. I need the ability to park the money with insurance and all of that. And then I need some piece of lending. And and people are going that route. And also investments, right? Money markets. A lot of people are coming up with these money market accounts and saying, hey, invest with me. I'll give you more savings rate, et cetera, et cetera. So um, next five, 10 years are going to be very interesting, but that only makes our life even more interesting because as they start doing that, guess what's happening? Compliance is going up, fraud is going up, and all of the regulatory stuff that these people have to do is going up. And the banks literally choke these fintechs on that, right? Saying, hey, you got to have this, you got to have that. And that's all automation, that's all AI, that's all the stuff we do. Okay, and so the with the increase in the amount of activity between um, fintechs and banks and the complications that that brings, that is where data series comes in. Right, exactly. Uh, we, we kind of take data from all different sources, uh, even traditional uh, mainframes, as well as real-time data, payments data, you know, ACH data, wire data, et cetera, et cetera. All sits in one place and it kind of creates a profile for the consumer. Okay. Uh, from that profile, you can actually, if you have a spectrum of good to bad, uh, you could actually, if you're on the good side, you could market to them uh, using the same data. If you're on the bad side, you could actually stop them from doing stuff. Uh, but its underlying data is exactly the same. Uh, so we, that's, what, that's exactly what we do. We do everything from fraud detection to filing of those uh, uh, suspicious activity reports with FinCEN, uh, onboarding, helping you understand consumer behavior. When is my consumer going to churn? When do I make money? When do I not make money? How do I make more money? Et cetera, et cetera. So it's a full spectrum of services that these fintechs and and um, banks should really be using, right? But traditionally have not. Okay, so is your actual customer, are you contracted with both the banks and the fintechs? Correct. or one? Okay. Both. Okay. Both, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's funny. I always tell the fintechs that, you know, we, we primarily sell to the banks. We, we perfected our platforms on the banks uh, because the banks had some specific stringent requirements. So when we go to the fintech, uh, it becomes easy because we tell them that, hey, the bank's already aware of who we are. They're going to be happy that you're working with us. So sure. that equation, and then I can offer that same platform to the fintechs for a significantly lower price because their volumes are lower than the bank as a whole. Okay, so someone listening to this probably understands that fintech means financial technology companies, but if they're not necessarily familiar with the big players in that universe, who would they be? So fintech is a is a broad industry, right? So uh, for us specifically, a fintech is somebody who is in the payments space, who is facilitating payments, right? So we don't touch, you know, insurance insurance tech or other other types mm-hmm. of financial services. Uh, so the big players in my space that we would typically go after would be Robinhood, Square, Venmo, uh, Chime, Vero Money, Money Lion, and all of these guys who are uh, Monzo, Revolut. You know, all, they're making a lot of noise in the industry today. Okay, H- how do companies like uh, let's take a World Pay or Global Payments come into it? So they're more on the acquiring side. I mean, they have some processing, but it's more on the acquiring side. Where whereas we sit more on the issuing side. Uh, and the difference is, you know, the acquiring people is where you swipe your card. The issuing is, you know, on the backside. So, for example, if you have a Citibank credit card, uh, it was issued by Citibank. So, you know, we would sit with Citibank on the backside, not the at the at the merchant end where you swiped your card. Mm-hmm. So, a little bit different. Uh, requirements are a little bit different. At the terminal, when you swipe your card, you're looking for card theft and uh, people who are swiping their card for 
you know, nefarious reasons and you got to stop it right then and there. We have a little bit more time. What we are looking for is more behavior based uh, rather than one transaction or let's say your card got used in California and it was, and you were in Georgia. We don't do that kind of stuff, right? That's the, that's a different industry completely. What we are looking for is, wait, you are actually getting money for six different individuals, uh, unemployment benefits on your card. Okay, that's a problem, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And that you will never get it from the acquiring side because uh, that money never touches the end terminal. It's actually getting issued and and getting loaded at the bank side. Okay. Is there much competition within your space? There is. um, I mean, I always tell people that uh, we are a solution, whereas a lot of other uh, competition or people perceive as competition are tools, a tool can be easily replaced, right? Our solution grows. Um, and, and the power of the solution is you don't have to piecemeal it, right? You know, you have a you have a full full kitchen. I can cook whatever you want in that kitchen kind of a concept, right? So when you go for a specific tool, you're only looking at it for that. And and let's say, you know, you're a fraud tool. And fraud generally is trending low. You're suddenly going to say, well, what's the use of that tool for me? Because fraud's not, you know, very hot right now. Mm-hmm. Whereas our solution gives you so much more, the ROI is tremendously high because, you know, it doesn't matter. The industry goes down, the industry goes up, fraud goes down, fraud goes up. There's so many other things that you can use in the, in the ecosystem or the solution itself. Well, what, what, what it sounds like you guys are doing is, yes, not just the information, but also um, insight and remedy as well. Absolutely. Uh, any analytics platform, right, uh, we, have, we have learned, and I have specifically learned this, that you can't just give people nice dashboards and, and charts. They don't know what that means. You've got to explain what that means. You've got to give them definitive things like, okay, do this, you know, don't do that, blah, blah, blah. So we have a very prescriptive you know, analytical platform where it actually gives you the workflow. It allows you to manage the workflow. So if, so what if I told you a fraud has occurred? Well, you got to go one step further and tell me how can I fight it? How can I reduce it, right? So we have recommendation engines which actually tell you what to do, recommended actions. Uh, we actually measure efficiencies of our algorithm saying, hey, is this algorithm really working? If it's not working, what's, what is it good for, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what, let's back up a little bit. Why are Why did you believe that you were particularly suited to solve this problem. Like, yes, that's now you have a company and a team and you are building this so that um, if, if something happened to you tomorrow, this company would go on. And so the company is the one uniquely suited. At a certain point in time, it was you that believed you were the guy to do this. That's actually, uh, you kind of gave me the answer in your question, but I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, so I'm a data guy, went to school to do data stuff, did data stuff for 15 plus years, uh, majority of that towards the end of my uh, my consulting career happened to be in payments. And I started working with this uh, one gentleman and, uh, you know, he always used to say, I wish there were two of you. I wish there were two of you. And I would joke back and say, that's actually exactly what my name means. Advait means truly unique that there is nobody like me <laughs> ever in the world, right? It's actually a philosophy in the in the Hindu religion called as Advaita yeah. uh, philosophy. So I said, well, I cannot make two of me, but tell you what, I can actually make a product that behaves or acts or does exactly what I typically do. And so I, you know, got acquired in that consulting firm and then started this product firm with the specific focus that no matter what happens to me, uh, the company should still go on. And it's actually going on. It took me two, two and a half years to get to a point where they don't need me anymore. Like I'm sitting here right now and, and stuff's going on in the office. People are handling stuff. So we finally got to a point where we replicated my thoughts. We replicated the ideas that I had into a product that is, you know, resellable to thousands of banks out there and, and fintechs. Uh, so when, whenever I'm talking to CEOs who are also founders, I'm curious as to the psychology of their entrepreneurship, where it comes from. Is it reluctant? Is it the only thing they could ever be? Um, there are some people who um, are reluctant entrepreneurs. There are some people that just can't, can't function under any sort of bureaucracy. And I'm curious where you fall on that spectrum. Um, I think a little bit differently, right? So most entrepreneurs do something or they become entrepreneurs because they fundamentally believe that something, whatever that is, is not being done right and they want to fix it. Right? That's ultimately the philosophy behind all of that. And so they say, well, if, if you're not going to fix it, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to go out and start it on my own, right? And that's pretty much every entrepreneur that's out there. You know, I, you know, 
I don't think that there is anybody out there who would say I'm an entrepreneur, but I don't believe that way. So that's, I think, the basis of all of it. Well, well, yes, obviously it has to start with an idea, but there are some people who have ideas and don't have um, the fortitude to actually go out there and do it. Yeah, so, you know, I'm left-brained and right-brained. I have creative, I mean, I, I can do Photoshop and Illustrator as well as I can write code and I can write a good business plan and I can go raise money if I want to raise money, right? That has come with experience, but that has also come with interest. Uh, my my interest is I want to know everything, right? I want to understand how a CFO works. I want to understand technology. So some people don't have that talent, right? So my advice to them always has been go find a co-founder, right? If you can't do something, if you feel that I'm not whole, find another piece. It's out there, right? That's why you see most of these big successful companies um, actually may have one or two or three or four co-founders because each one of them is unique and together they make the 360, in our case, I brought a lot to the table uh, where I, I knew things from before. I'm a finance guy. I love, I love numbers. Um, I'm a tech guy, was a developer, programmer. I have had business exposure before. So I said, you know what, let's start differently and then build it and then bring senior level executives in the company. So, you know, yes, some people fail, um, but that fail... And, I, and so I have, I, I have worked with startups that have failed before, but we you know we all learn from it, right? And we do, uh, we don't make those same mistakes again. So it's a learning. Sure. Well, look, the, the mistakes, and I think this goes for anyone, whether you're at a large company or a small company, those mistakes are kind of what ultimately get you to the place where you need to be. Um, you learn what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you what you don't want to do, what you do want to do. Exactly. Uh, let's talk about Tech Alpharetta and how it has played into your journey. You actually mentioned before this that you're moving offices. And so this means that you have had some level of success and that you've grown out of an incubator and you need a big office. So let's let's rewind and talk about how you came to Tech Alpharetta and what it did for you. Absolutely. So how I found Tech Alpharetta was actually an interesting story. Uh, we needed a we needed space when we when I hired my first employee, uh, you know, I had to do a H one B, and I had to have physical office space. Uh, and we started looking, and we came to Tech Alpharetta saying, "Okay, well, let's start here. Let's actually incubate here." Uh, so we started that. Um, we grew out of that space quickly because our product saw success in the market pretty early. Uh, we hired more people. We grew out of there. We started looking at an office. We settled down in Alpharetta. We have been in this office for about eighteen months. We have grown out of this office pretty much as this year started. On Almost in January 2020, we knew that we had more people than spaces. And then COVID hit, so we kind of dragged our feet a little bit. Um, and finally, we are at a place, uh, we are going three times bigger from an office space perspective. And most people are saying, hey, work from home. We can't. There is so much stuff that we can do when we are collaborating together. There is so much creativity. There is so much energy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we we pretty much grew out of every single place we have been fast. And that's why... You know, I've only been signing one-year leases because I know I'm going to grow out of it in another year. Yeah. So, yeah, no. Look, I, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. Obviously, as as a real estate guy, this is something that has been front and center. And you know, no one who I talk to, maybe two companies, you know, that I've been associated with that don't really see themselves growing that much. That kind of have a you know set. I don't know, standard of, uh, you know, work and, you know, they're sound like they're hiring a bunch of people. Other than that, no one really is thinking about that I'm encountering doing away with some sort of physical location, right? Maybe it's a difference of how, you know, people will maybe not come to the office five days a week, but maybe switch out, you know, three days a week. But anyone who I talk to who is hiring, who's trying to collaborate, who has a team, there's just no way that you can't do that. In, yeah, I agree. In, in person. I agree. Uh, we we were flex work anyways from, from day one, right? We didn't care where people were. Uh, what the office does, though, is it gives that secure connection, security, uh, connecting to our clients. I mean, we do have a lot of PCI, PII, mm-hmm. and, and, and NPI data. Um, so it becomes safer for them, too. And sometimes I'll tell you this, right? Personal experience. When you're working from home, there is no start or end. You almost feel like you just keep working and working and working and working. But when you go to office, you're like, you know what? Five o'clock, I'm done. I'm going home. So sometimes people want that. They want to actually go to the office and say, hey, dude, I'm not picking up your phone after five o'clock because I'm done working. I think even the most self-disciplined among us need that separation. Yep. Um, And what really worries me, and I guess we'll see if this actually plays out over the next couple of years... I'm very concerned with companies that take it too far and in an effort to 
try and reduce cost. You've got younger workers that need that face-to-face to develop their skills, to develop political clout within an organization, to gain leadership skills that at the time that they would have been up for, you know, the next rung up the ladder, that they're either not going to have the relationships, they're not going to have the emotional intelligence. Um, it uh, Again, this is, I hope it doesn't turn out like that, but I'm, I'm worried that in a couple of years you could see a new generation of workers that doesn't advance as quickly. Yeah, that is so true. I mean, if you're just chatting with everybody on Teams or Slack or whatever, you're never going to be able to un- like deal with people in real life. And, you know, when you go back to work, you're going to struggle. We actually had two people that, uh, you know, we lost in India um, because they were young, they were fresh, and we hired them because we could train them. But sitting home, they felt the strain saying that, hey, I couldn't get this person's attention all day, so I didn't end up doing anything. I didn't learn anything. Well, that other person was busy. But if you were in the office and you could have just gone and tapped him on the shoulder and say, hey, I need your help right now, would have been easier, right? So that's, it's there. It's both. Uh, I, I don't think that either one extreme works. Like you can't force everybody to be at work, nor you can tell everybody to stay home forever. Now, some big companies have done that. They've said, hey, no coming back to work until 2022 or something, which again, large companies can afford to do that because they have so much redundancy within the company. They have so much layers and that's why they move slow. I mean, if you're trying to move fast, I mean, think about us. We launch a new product every day. We have a CI/CD process every single day. A new version comes out. It's tested by everybody. Automation tested and it comes out and we cannot be so slow. It, it just won't work. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and especially you as you are growing this team, right? You you are forming a community. You are forming a group of people that trust each other. And um, it just, that doesn't happen if you can't be face-to-face with each other, at least at some point. Exactly. And, and most people that come work for us, they don't work for us uh, for a paycheck, right? I mean, of course we pay them. Of course we do their visas, but that's not why they take their jobs. Or even if, if they don't need a visa, they don't take a job with us because it's just another job. They work with us because they have that opportunity to excel in their career. They can actually build it. We actually have sessions where each person talks to their boss saying, boss, I'm doing this, but what's next? How do I get to the next step? And that mentorship, at least for me, I've never seen it happen virtually or in a work from home environment. I mean, you need that interpersonal you know, abilities and, and the, the way, okay, how, how are you going to react with somebody, right? So that's the key uh, where the, the love and the sharing and, and the ability to teach other folks comes in like, you know, l- just look at learning. We've never had virtual learning up until now. And, you know, my kids are, you know, some of them are struggling. They're not happy with the way things are going. It's e- either not enough or sometimes it's too much. And I think they're, they're losing out this year, right? I'm so happy that I have young kids. My oldest one is three and that it's, they just don't have to deal with that. I think it's, Look, I, I, I do not envy the schools whatsoever to try and deal with this situation, but you see a ton of private schools that have been able to make this work and accommodate both those that want to come in and not. There's got to be a way for everyone to do this. And unfortunately, the, the, the group that it ends up hurting the most are those with the least means yeah. um, that are probably already behind um, and that don't have parents who can who have jobs where they can work from home to actually force it. It's... Uh, I, I, I hope we never have this discussion again after next year. It's <laughs> Me too, me too. Yeah. Uh, well, look, I really appreciate you coming on. And if anyone out there listening wants to learn more about Data Sears, how do they do that? Datasears.ai. We are on every single social media. Follow us, uh, email us. We are hiring uh, both here as well as in India. Um, we probably will be double our size by end of the year. So we are looking for smart people. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay. Karen, how are you? Doing well. Excellent. So you are the leader behind Tech Alpharetta that has pro- helped produce companies like Data Sears. So what what do you think? Well, okay, let's we, we we can dive deep into what's unique, but just at a high level for someone listening, what is Tech Alpharetta and what is its mission? So Tech Alpharetta is a nonprofit, and our mission is to help grow technology and innovation in the city of Alpharetta. And we are, are doing that in a number of ways, uh, the most visible way being our, our tech startup incubator in the city of Alpharetta. Um, but we also host uh, tech educational and thought leadership programs for area technology executives. And we run a strategic board of area tech leaders. 
Okay. And how did you come to this work? Have you always been on the nonprofit side of the world? Do you come from a corporate background? Why is this a passion for you? Well, you know, I, I come to it uh, with a unique background, I think. Um, I practiced law, actually, for, for 20 years. But uh, during the, the latter 10 years of that practice, it was on the technology side. As, um, and, you know, as a software licensing attorney, I really enjoyed working with the tech sector and in the tech sector because I was also in-house counsel to several technology companies. And um, so I have a real passion for technology and uh, innovation. And when I uh, moved from Atlanta to Alpharetta back in 2004, I started looking for a local technology organization out there. There wasn't one, but there were hundreds of technology companies. I was surprised about that, so I decided to start a nonprofit uh, as my uh, volunteer nights and weekends side hustle. And uh, that, that nonprofit was called the Greater Alpharetta Tech Network, which was all tech thought leadership programming for technology executives in Alpharetta. There was great program. There always has been in the city of Atlanta, but it, it can be very difficult because of the traffic for executives working up at Alpharetta to get down to the programming in, in Atlanta. So I thought we needed to fill that gap um, in Alpharetta. So that, that was how I tested the waters of both entrepreneurship and the nonprofit world. And uh, got involved with this organization as well at that time, which back then was under a different name. And ultimately, after the incubator was opened, I was approached about taking on the CEO position. And uh, to me, at that point, it was a no-brainer. Practicing law gives you a really uh, solid business foundation. And it's also something that you can uh, leave and come back to um, with relative ease. And this was something I felt very passionate about, helping to grow the innovation community and technology in the city of Alpharetta, where I live. So I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in different work styles of different organizations. When you were an attorney, were you at a very big firm or were you kind of on your own? I have, I have tried um, a couple of different uh, arrangements. I started out at a, a mega firm in New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I relocated to Atlanta, I intentionally chose a very, very small boutique law firm. Okay. And, uh, and then I also worked for large enterprise companies as in-house counsel. Okay. So, and, and, and the reason I asked ask all this is because, okay, whether you're certainly much more things are more regimented at a huge firm than at a boutique firm. At the end of the day, an attorney's day, you know, is measured in, uh, you know, six minute increments. Absolutely. And so it is somewhat regimented, whether you're a solo practitioner or whether you're at King and Spalding. Um, and now you are in an organization, it's kind of a startup, right? Yes. I mean, obviously not, you know, you have a track record, you've been around, but like, you know, this is not a big corporate behemoth. You're kind of running it and deciding what to do. And so you are somewhat of an entrepreneur in that as well with a very different day structure than you've traditionally had. And I'm curious if that was a, it was it a lot to get used to or was it shedding away the billable hours was freedom? I, you know, I love that question because um, it, it was a, a bit of a process of, of shedding uh, one type of work style for another. Um, you know, I, I guess I, I came to the realization that I was an entrepreneur a little later in my career than than other people have. Um, but to me, it, it was something I embraced wholeheartedly. Um, and it, it was still a process to mm-hmm. slowly get accustomed to not having to keep track of my hours um, and to have to let go of some of the time management techniques that had been tried and true in one industry, but definitely don't work as an entrepreneur. Um, but but I love it. No no two days are the same. Um, and you can map out your day in advance if you want, but it's never going to go as you planned it. Yeah. Um, and, you, and it requires a, a great deal of flexibility and agility. And um, I, I absolutely love that work style. That's great. That's great. Uh, you know, let, let's, let's go back to Alpharetta for a minute. So you mentioned you, know, you moved from the city up to Alpharetta and um, was looking for tech resources there. And I'm curious as to what you think is unique about Alpharetta that it has um, really fostered such an entrepreneurial community, specifically focused around technology. When I think of other major metros, um, I think of places like Arlington in D.C., uh, Cambridge in Boston, um, you know, Silicon Valley in San Francisco, you know, these suburbs that are maybe 25 to 30 minutes north of the city center that have 
just fostered some incredible companies. You go to any of, if you drive through any of these areas, you will see a skyline and you will see names on buildings um, of very reputable companies um, that have kind of, you know, spawned in the, in the edge city, so to speak. And why is Alpharetta the place for that to have happened here in the Atlanta Metro? Well, Alpharetta has an interesting backstory. You know, in the 1980s, it was still a farming community. Um, but the, the leaders of the city, and I think at that time it had, you know, 20,000 people maybe. Um, today, it's still relatively small at 65,000, although the population doubles during the daytime with the influx of people yeah. coming into work. But um, the leaders had the foresight when the opportunity came to have the fiber optic network um, laid up Georgia 400. Um, the leadership in Alpharetta at that time said, yes, absolutely. Bring it through the city of Alpharetta. We want it here. Um, nobody could have known all, you know, all the good things that that would enable, but they had the, the foresight to see and, and the vision to see that this, this would help them build the business community. And with that network and a, a really robust um, power grid from, from Georgia Power as an infrastructure in Alpharetta, the, the foundation was laid. And uh, you know, a, a few tech companies said, hey, you know, the CEOs very often live out in the suburbs of Atlanta, and we're driving into Atlanta and said, hey, well, you know, we've got the, we've got the raw ingredients here. Why don't we move the company out here, eliminate the commute? And that, that's sort of how it started. And, you know, tech likes to cluster. Um, so once there's a few companies, more follow on from there. And, um, and then the innovators um, were also attracted to the fact that this was sort of a unique suburban environment where technology and innovation were being embraced by, by, uh, by city leadership as well as the business community. And it just continued to grow. And the addition of our incubator in 2015 has, um, I think, helped been a real game changer for the continued growth of innovation in the city because you have a physical space where... Uh, startup founders can come and uh, meet and talk with one another, uh, get the resources that they need to help grow their their companies, and uh, meet other founders that may have solved some of the problems they're encountering or that are going through the same things, work with mentors. Um, it's really important to have that that physical space where you can host events and have, have startups on site. It is. I mean, anyone, look, Atlanta Tech Village is the incubator in this area that gets all of the hype. Um, and anyone who has gone to visit there and who remembers what that building was before, which was the Atlanta Business Chronicle building. And uh, I, I used to practice law right up the street from that. Yeah. Building. I remember and it, it well. was not particularly aesthetically appealing. Um, wow. And when you when you go in, it's just amazing the community that has been built off of, you know, this theme we were talking about with Oddweight as well, this, you know, physical proximity to talent and ideas. And it's so simple in thought, right? Put a bunch of curious, smart, ambitious people together in the same room. Um, it's magical what that will often produce. And, I'm curious as to how you run TAC Alpharetta to foster that community. What are the programs that are available? How does a company get involved? How do you take it from, you know, a data seers, you know, needs a space for two people to they've moved out a couple years later and are still growing? What's the process? Right. So, um, you know, you have the space, but that's not going to create a success. You know, you bring the startups in, it's still going to just be a co-working space unless you add the ingredients to um, evolve it from co-working space to an incubator. And what that really requires is um, programs, um, educational programs, mentoring, connections, um, investor introductions, investor meet and greets, uh, meetups on site. There, there's, a, you know, a whole synthesis of ingredients that need to be there um, to really make that a success, as well as, of course, the startups themselves. Um, and, and for us, you know, the startups that we bring in have to be um, technology startups and they have to be developing their own intellectual property. So this is this is a pure startup, tech startup safe space where everybody's in the same boat. Um, we have a lot of software as a service B2B startups, mm-hmm. um, but we also have some med device, med, med tech um, and others. But but they're all in the same place um, with the same thought process of creating. They're, they're all in the process of creating and developing something. And what we do is we try and help um, fill in the gaps um, where they may need some help 
Um, they might need uh, they might need something like a lawyer to work on a term sheet. They come to us. We can help help connect them with that person. They might need some mentoring from an industry veteran that solved some problems in a similar industry. We developed a mentoring program, um, and we can connect them with our mentors that can help them answer some questions or provide some guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we, you know, we ourselves, um, our director of operations and I do, do a great deal of, of mentoring as well on a pretty much daily basis with our, our startups working with them. So there's a lot of connecting, introducing one startup to another. They may have never met, may have never been in the building at the same time, but they may, there may be some really great potential synergies. We make sure to make those introductions. Um, so it's, there's a lot of different elements that are going into that mix, but all of them are really critical to helping the startups to grow their companies and to succeed. Uh, how, approximately how many member companies do y'all have at any given time? At any given time, we have between 45 and 55 member companies. And is that a firm kind of cap or just number that you've come up with that this keeps the community robust but tight? Or is that just coincidence? You know, it, it's it's sort of organically settled into that um, range from a, a startup number standpoint. Um, sometimes it's been a little more, sometimes it's been a little mess, less, but that's been the critical mass um, because not every startup succeeds. So uh, you may add 10 new startups, but then you're going to lose a few who, does, who it's just not going to work out for them. They're going to close up shop and go do something else. Yeah. And so it just seems to continue to, to remain right within that range. It ebbs and flows naturally. It does. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything that, you know, look, we, we often talk about what Atlanta and I, when I say Atlanta, I mean, Atlanta Metro greater Atlanta is doing well on this show and why there are so many great organizations being built and moving here. And obviously you feel this way as well, because you are, you run an organization that is designed to help companies grow here in, you know, the Atlanta Metro area. Um, Anything that you have felt is lacking from a state or city perspective that you think we have room to go to make this the best ecosystem for startups it could be? Yeah, I I think we've seen tremendous progress um, in the growth of a more unified innovation ecosystem across the metro Atlanta area, which of course includes Alpharetta, um, just in the past five years. um, And I think one of the areas for improvement that we're all striving for is on getting that message out because very often uh, the smaller hubs um, are, you know, they don't receive as much exposure as the Silicon Valleys and the Bostons and New York's. But, but Metro Atlanta has a tremendous thriving innovation ecosystem and the more we can unify that ecosystem and get the message out, the better it's going to be for the businesses and the startups that are in this metropolitan community, as well as for companies around the country who might be interested in partnering with innovators and not know about what's happening here in the metro area. I, I very much agree with you, and I typically uh, see this within the context of funding, where so many companies have to go outside of Atlanta to really get a decent sized check. Um, and that it, it, it all kind of plays into the, I don't know how well known this area is as a robust place, um, you know, for companies that should be funded. Granted, it, I think in the past decade, it has grown by leaps and bounds, but still probably not where it should be. My amateur psychologist diagnosis of this has been some form of um, maybe subconscious Southern humility in that we're not, are, are, are we not bragging about ourselves enough? You know, again, this is not any sort of, you know, theory that I've, you know, hypothesis that I firmly tested. But when, um, when I look at the other regions that we discussed that maybe have a little bit more cachet, so to speak, whether that's deserved or whether it's not, I just wonder, like, is is putting our head down and kind of doing the work, which I think is a real strength of this region. Should we maybe be shouting from the rooftops a little bit more? Well, I I think so. And I think part of the reason that we haven't up until now is because it's, 
it's a relatively recent development, this, yeah. this really vast, thriving innovation ecosystem that we have here. And so we have all had our heads down for the last five or 10 years while this started to evolve. And suddenly we've lifted up our heads and say, hey, we've got something really great going on here. We need to let everybody else know about it. And I, and I think now is the time. Uh, and, and you are obviously contributing to that with, you know, building great companies out of Tech Alpharetta. So if anyone listening to this wants to either be a part of Tech Alpharetta or maybe a um, vendor that thinks they could partner with Tech Alpharetta, provide services to startups, what's the best way to learn more about what you guys do? They can go to www.techalfreda.com or they can email me directly, Karen at techalfreda.com. Great. All right, Karen, thanks for sharing. Thanks, Jerry. Okay. Jason Perez, you've been waiting patiently. How you doing? <laughs> Very well. Well, you, you've had great guests, so it's been entertaining. Good. So um, you are kind of the the first part of where you, you're going last on the show, but you are really the first um, iteration of what we've been talking about, which is member company joins up with Talca Alpharetta to grow their business. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that we're an embryo. Uh, you know, we've probably graduated out of diapers and uh, we're, we're stumbling around maybe, uh, but it's been a fantastic journey and, you know, being part of Tech Alpharetta has been fantastic for us as well. Okay. So before we get deep into kind of the relationship between Yards and Tech Alpharetta, just overview of what Yards does. Yeah. So uh, I, I always like to split what Yards does and maybe what our product does, right? So our product is the easiest way for contractors to manage and track their owned and rented equipment. And so a lot of people don't know about construction and what rental equipment is. Um, But essentially, you got to imagine when you wanted to book some type of travel and you want to rent a car or you want to get to a hotel or or book an airline, right? Uh, About 40 years ago or even 30 years ago, you might still have a travel agent and they're going to make a bunch of phone calls. They're going to track everything down. And if you didn't, you know, and you were like me when I first got in the business world. Um, I had a folder for every town I was going to, and I would make those phone calls, and I would go on and book everything and print out MapQuest, which, you know, people that are listening probably don't even know what that is. Loved MapQuest. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would do that, right? And uh, it was very time intensive, and it just just sucked the life out of you after a while. Every time you had to go to a new city, you were thinking, man, what a waste of time. Well, the construction industry when it comes to renting equipment, right? They do these big projects. They need to rent dirt moving equipment, you know, excavators, bulldozers, things like that. But they also rent scissor lifts, which are, you know, if you walk into a lobby somewhere, sometimes you see those and and they're helping people reach things that you typically can't with the ladder. Um, But they would pick up the phone and they would spend an hour trying to track down this equipment and compare rates and book it. And you go, wow, you know, construction's gone so far. And what's kind of interesting is there was such a push in what I'll call white collar tech for construction. I mean, if you go in right now and you're building a building, they can put goggles on you and you can walk through that building before they even show up and break dirt. I mean, you can do that today. Oh yeah. It's amazing. But you go to the blue collar side and you go, what are we building for people to help get their job done and and people really just haven't focused on them. And what they don't understand is, you know, $60 billion, that's with a B that's going on out there in rental equipment and people are ignoring it. And I thought, well, man, what an opportunity for us. So, so that's what our product does. What, what I like to say we do as a company is, you know, we're selling peace of mind. You know, we, we, I like to say that we're joy generators, you know, our customers, um, we have such a great relationship with them beyond than just, you know, them using our product. We get to talk to them about, you know, the wins of them getting home early each day from work, because now what used to take them 10, 12 hours takes them two or three hours to manage on the day. And, you know, they're getting to spend more time with their family or, you know, they have more peace of mind at work and they're not as stressed. And and that's really the things that we're selling. That, you know, there are so many businesses that have done incredible things by digitizing an analog process. And in 2020, I think that, you know, to our peril, we might look around and think like, well, what is left out there that is still working like this? Um, and it's, uh, to your credit, it's it's the way to build a great business when you can identify those rote uh, menial tasks that with just a little bit of digitization can change how a company operates. 
That's right. I, when people think about tech innovation, everybody starts reaching out for these monsters and they start looking at these CEOs that, you know, the, the Facebooks and the Twitters and, you know, the Teslas or PayPal's or wh- whoever it might be, right? And how they started and what they did and the disruption. Um, but what I've found as, I, as I've kind of entered this ecosystem, right? I, I came from construction. I'm a dirt guy. My dad was you know, electrician. My, my brother was an electrician. We're all, you know, construction people. But as I entered this ecosystem about a year and a half, two years ago and started learning about it, what I found was the companies that were successful really were solving basic problems. You know, they were leveraging existing workflows that were manual and they were tapping into people. You know, I, t- I tell people the best tech innovators are actually, you know, this baby boomer, um, generation that have been doing things just manually for years and years and have created such great efficiency, but it's manual. And all you have to do is talk to some of these people and go, how do you do it? All right, well, you know, I can make a computer do exactly what you're doing. And I think, you know, the gentleman from data Sears uh, made such a great point. And I think that's why he's so successful. He looked and he said, or, or at least his boss said, Hey, we want two guys or three guys or four guys doing what you're doing. And he's like, well, I can just build tech to do what I do. Right. And so people ignore that legacy knowledge and, um, and we're really blessed. We, we had a great opportunity to speak to some very wise people within the industry and tap into their legacy knowledge, you know? And it's, it's look, you came from a place where you saw this, you, you experienced the problem because of your construction background, obviously puts you in a unique position to be the one to solve it because in, in another life you would have been a customer or, or someone in your organization would have been a customer of yards. That's right. That's right. And, and I was, you know, I was on the GC side, um, you know, yards actually was birthed, uh, out of one of my neighbors coming up to me and saying, Hey, I want to start a, an equipment rental brokerage. And he started talking through it. And at the time, you know, I was on my ninth year of my consulting company. Um, we'd built it fairly successfully, uh, internationally doing projects all over the world. And as he started talking about the labor intensiveness of what he wanted to build, I said, you know, let me, let me run through the numbers. Let me run through what this roadmap and business plan actually looks like. And, you know, I tell people he, he, after that day, he really either thought I was really smart or he, uh, he really didn't like me anymore. You know, he, he probably didn't like me anymore. Uh, but a couple weeks later I called him and I said, you know, I've been thinking about this. We can do everything that you talked about with tech. You know, if you, if you're willing to go after that, um, and you think that the relationships will still work and we can, we can match that workflow, then let's try it out. And so we spent nine months, no coding, no, you know, strategy around the tech. It was literally just talking to people, talking to customers. And, and one thing I'll, I'll tell to people you know, entrepreneurs that might be listening, other other people that are in tech. The indicator for us that market timing was right wasn't that when we talked to them, they said, oh yeah, I have pain. And it wasn't that when we, when we spoke to them about the solution that they loved it. Because what I tell people is, you know, people love buying ideas. They do. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you give me an idea and I'm going to exchange with you a fictitious, you know, amount of money that yes, I would love to buy it. But when it comes down to it and you build the product and you go, are they really going to write the check? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Or are they just being nice to you because you're sitting across the table and it's hard to tell human beings no. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. I don't want to crush people's dreams, yeah. right? Um, and, and in the South, like you said, everybody's really nice. <laughs> they are. Yeah. They are. So, um, but the biggest indicator for market timing was when I walked in, and I saw whiteboards and spreadsheets and sticky notes on people's walls and they're color coding it. And they're trying to build this, you know, these different mechanisms around to manage all the things that really technology should have been doing 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so the biggest indicator that, that it's right for the market and it's ripe for the picking is that people are trying to solve the problem themselves. They're investing themselves in solving it already. They have tried to solve it, right? And, and if you're not seeing people trying to solve it, the pain just might not be that big. 
So in, from everything that you're telling me, it sounds like you yourself didn't necessarily have a technological or coding background. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, and so okay, so I, I'm I'm curious. You have this idea, right? You have seen that something needs to exist. What did you then go do to get that talent to actually develop the product? All right, so so I, I gave a little unsolicited advice about um, market timing. I'm going to give some unsolicited advice about how to be successful successful as a founder and all through every stage of your startup. Um, get smart people around you. You know, uh, with my consulting firm, I had an advisory board um, and we had just tremendous people that helped us grow. I'm really not that smart. You know, I can talk fairly well. Um, Sometimes you know, that's all it takes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes. Uh, but, but surrounding myself with just good counsel, you know? And so I had a mentor advisor and, and he was the first one that I spoke to. Uh, he, he was the chair of my advisory board for my consulting firm. And I said, Hey, look, I'm, I know I'm semi-retired type situation and I'm trying to think about where I'm going. Here's an idea. And he said, well, you know, I know a couple people in the tech industry. Let me connect you. And so, um, he's, he's out of California and, and I started speaking to a lot of people out there. And the first thing they said is you got to align yourself with some incubators. You need to go out. They're going to plug you into the ecosystem. You're not going to be able to do you know, what you want to do by going back and forth to California. Right. Um, and, and that's what I was doing with my consulting company. I was, I was flying back and forth to California all the time. So, so these are the people that essentially said, you know, get plugged into the ecosystem. And that's how we ended up, you know, uh, initially at ATDC and then later at, at tech Alpharetta. And, um, it's been a tremendous help. They, they connect you to the right people. They, they put, you know, certain guidelines and, 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 um, just, just solid individuals that have done it already. You know, they've stepped in the mud and now they can tell you where it exists so mm-hmm. you don't step in it yourself. Right. Um, and there is such value, like whether it's some sort of a, online technology-based aggregator aggregator of information or a human-based aggregator of people and resources. It's just incredible what that can do for your network and um, for how you're able to scale. Uh, agreed 100%. Uh, we wouldn't be here, one, without the advisors, and two, without places like Tech Alpharetta that do. They, they aggregate humans. They aggregate knowledge, right, wisdom, um, and maybe the most important piece is the aggregate generosity, you know, and that's something that that's very difficult to do, you know, to aggregate generosity, to find people that really care. That's difficult to do. But when you do that and you're going to have gold just pouring out of that river. I, I think that most people who have been successful have a pay it forward type attitude and at a certain point, not with everyone, right, but, you know, with a certain type of person, you get to a place where it becomes more, it's more valuable to kind of groom the next generation and see others grow. You've, you've done that yourself, and so this becomes kind of the next phase. I, I think that it just, it takes, it takes someone or something to bring those people together and give them the opportunity to do that. But I think when given that opportunity, it's um, a lot of people take it with open arms. That's right. And, and I think you learn as an entrepreneur, and, and I learned from my mentor, um, that generosity is a catalyst in itself. You know, that as you become a company, if generosity is at the core of who you are, you're going to be generous with with your team. You're going to be generous with your customers and clients. You're going to be generous with your partners. And, and you know, that's really where your return comes. And when you're authentic and you care about how your customer is doing, not, not because you're trying to sell them something, but because you truly believe that together you can solve a problem. You know, I would like to think that and, and, and say that I was so smart in coming together with, you know, what yards is today, right? That we came together and we thought about 
all the things and the way the market was going to move. And, you know, we were so smart to build this, but we really weren't. I mean, our first idea, our, our MVP wasn't even close to what the market wanted. It was, it was our customers at the time that said, well, you're doing something cool, but you're still way, way off. You know, can you do it this way for us? And instead of thinking and having ego, thinking that we had the right solution and they were the ones that were wrong, we said, you know what? Customers always right. Like, let's listen to them. Yeah. And so that's what we did. We, we pivoted very quickly from our prototype. We built our MVP that was well-received. And ever since then, you know, our product has been designed and developed by our customers. It's, it's not us. We are just listening to the market. We are, we are literally just translators in between what they want and the tech that gets developed. And so that's the way I, I see ourselves. Are, are, are you solely focused Look, fo- focus obviously helps an early stage company, right? If you are trying to go after too many verticals or too many problems, then you can drown under the weight of your own ideas. So right now you're focused on this issue of equipment rental within the construction industry. Are you focused solely on construction and in the future you see this technology is able to solve other problems besides equipment rental and or or do you see this technology as able to solve problems for other industries? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I will say this. We are focused on construction rentals 100% for the unforeseeable future. Undoubtedly, Joey, you're a very, very smart man. I think in your brain, you ask that question because you see all the problems that this can solve, right? Um, and so will we essentially tackle other markets at some point? We will. Because I think when we look at what we're doing um, and we saw the reaction of our customers, we said, wow, you know, there are simple tweaks to other industries that need exactly this. And some industries that you look at and you go, but they've already solved that problem. And when we sat down with our advisors, they go, you know what? They didn't solve, they, they solved the stage of it or a step of it. They, they plowed the fields and they have some things growing there, but they really didn't set up a system around it that matches the behavior of the people. And that's us, you know, behavior and psychology is at the core of what we do. I want to match people's behavior. And, I, and psychologically, you know, I want to relieve stress and pain from their lives. You know, um, again, back to, to being a joy generator. We, we really do. We want them to use the product. Um, we would, we, I just had lunch with one of our customers. Uh, six of them were sitting in the conference room. We, we brought some lunch in and we said, hey, we're doing a lunch and learn, which typically in the construction world means that we're going to teach them something for them to learn, but we take a different approach in our lunch and learn. We tell them, hey, we're giving you lunch so that we can learn. And so we, we started asking them questions and it was interesting. They said, you know, um, they, they thought that they were on the, the platform for a little over two years. And we said, no, it's only been six months. And they go, wow. I mean, we've done so much on it already and we've, we've relieved so much pain it feels like it's been years now that we've been using it. And um, when we hear stories like that from our customers, we know we're doing something right. I, I, hope, I hope you're getting someone to put that quote on your website. It's a, <laughs> a pretty good one. <laughs> I don't, look, it's you. I feel like I asked some version of this question and a lot of entrepreneurs are a little bit cagey and don't want it to seem like they're trying to boil the ocean of ideas. But at the end of the day, Look, obviously some pieces of technology are really only made for the particular problem they're trying to solve. But technology has unintended consequences. And as you learn new things about what that technology can do that maybe you didn't think it could do, and you learn new things about your clients and other issues they have, inevitably there's generally other use cases down the line. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, look, uh, it, uh, that... that, that um, 
a quote, uh, that affirmation, uh, enough sounds like you guys are doing great things. So the name of your company is spelled Y-A-R-D-Z, like zebra. Yes, sir. Is your website just yards.com? Yards.com. That was one of the first decisions I had to make as a CEO. <laughs> um, and, uh, I think it was well worth it. We, we went for the five letter domain and, um, you know, having short emails and having short domain and having a ring uh, name like Yards is is worked well. Totally. All right, Jason, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thank you. I'm very honored to be on, Joey. And and, and thank you, everyone, for uh, helping to put this Tech Alpharetta theme episode together. And thank you to our co-sponsor, Trevelino Keller, for um, having the idea and putting all these uh, great people here today. Have a good day, everyone. <laughs>